and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. This week's episode took a different turn than our normal programming. Coronavirus has ravaged every sector of the economy. And while big tech has stayed relatively flat and certain areas have seen unprecedented demand, the vast majority of the world is working through an excruciatingly tough, once in a century type event. This week I chatted with Hunter Walk, co-founder and managing partner at Homebrew Ventures. Hunter and team have $200 million in assets under management and have invested in some of the biggest generational winners of our time including Plaid, Bowery Farming, Chime, Building Connected, and Cruise, amongst others. We talked all things tech and venture capital during this incredibly trying time. Hunter, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Really glad to uh, be here with you. You know, I think when we scheduled this, who would have predicted that we would be uh, sheltering in place? Uh, The world has changed significantly over the last few weeks. It's very much so changed. And and that's why, Hunter, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. You know, I think today's show is, in in many senses, it's going to be atypical from the normal format, right? You alluded to it, but we're in the midst of a totally, you know, black swan, once in a century event. So we're going to focus a ton of the conversation on that, uh, on COVID, how you're thinking about, you know, the implications for your portfolio companies, you know, advising founders, et cetera. But before we do a deep dive on that, you know, let's, let's talk just a little bit more about your background, right? You're managing over $200 million in assets under management, backed a bunch of great startups at Homebrew. Just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. So, you know, I feel really fortunate um, for a lot of reasons. Um, But when it comes to Homebrew, you know, I I literally have the logo tattooed on my shoulder. So it's a statement about, um, you know, what Sacha, my, my, my partner at Homebrew and I, you know, want to be isn't just a bunch of dollars under management. It's not just access to, you know, a checkbook. It's a commitment we make to a relatively small number of founders we back each year, um, maybe eight to 10 teams at the seed stage to be, you know, sort of a real partner to them for especially those first three to five years. Um, we've, we're investing at our third fund now. We started in early 2013 and it was the you know manifestation of a of a sort of decade-long desire for my partner, Sacha, and I to work together again. We had been um, product managers at, at Google together, 03 to 06, and always thought that we were going to figure out a way to, to do something together again. Um, but it wasn't until late 2012 where we sort of had a chance to do that from a blank sheet of paper. Um, he had been running product at Twitter, left there. I had been thinking about running Google, uh, excuse me, leaving Google after about a decade. And, um, and Homebrew came out of that, um, purely sort of a partnership, a desire to take some of the things that we've learned from operators and help people with uh, you know, uh, their vision of what the world should look like. Um, just help them you know, maybe move a little bit faster with a little bit higher probability of success. Um, and then that would be our legacy. You know, we've sort of started out a little bit counterintuitively you know, without a growth plan, without a succession plan. Um, we just want to be the best version of homebrew. Um, and you know, over the course of a few decades, um, maybe what we'll have to show for that are the the companies we backed and founders being proud of what they built. Well, it's an interesting time, especially for, you know, the companies you are backing, right? And in many ways, this past month feels like it's been its own year. The world has, you know, changed significantly. You alluded to that earlier. Um, and I want to I want to start off before, you know, jumping super deeply mm-hmm. into tactical advice you're giving to founders, you know, how you're thinking about it you know, from a fundraising um, uh, fundraising perspective in, in terms of how the landscape has changed. I want to I want to go back to a post that you wrote late last month, and you were talking about the tension between tech and tech media, and those uh, in tech that have been following, you know, closely along over the past you know month month and a half or so know that 
Imbalaji Srinivasan, who, you know, former CTO of Coinbase and GP Andreessen, he's been sounding the alarm, you know, for quite a bit of time. And there was pushback in traditional media. And it was interesting to read, you know, that post and, and your perspectives on the tension between tech and tech media. Talk a little bit more. Let's kick off the conversation by, you know, talk a little bit more about the genesis of that post. Yeah, you know, thanks. Application. Um, you know, the post itself may have been precipitated by, you know, sort of recent flare-ups, but it was something that I had been thinking about and, and observing for a while. Um, the, I think a lot of what ails tech today, and I, you know, I actually think it's, it's moving in a positive direction, but when you go back, especially the last few years, we were so used to being an underdog industry. The heritage and the way that we sort of think about ourselves you know, as Silicon Valley, as technology, or you know, just a bunch of nerds working on the computer, doing stuff that um, you know, maybe other people don't understand or don't think can work, and fighting against the odds to build stuff that should exist. Um, and that's a very, you know, romantic view of sort of the origins of, you know, Silicon Valley. But, you know, I think it's an identity that many people hold, you know, very precious. Um, when I got out here in 1998, you know, it was still very much, um, even though it was the beginnings of the commercial internet, you know, it was still just a bunch of, you know, geeks, geeks coding, right? Uh, nerds, nerds who like to build stuff um, was the way people wanted to think of themselves. And, you know, technology, I, I don't think you can argue any other way. I mean, look at even after, you know, the recent market slides, look at the most valuable companies in the world. And, and any of them are, are software companies or technology companies. Um, you know, we're in a position of power and responsibility. Um, and that comes with it, a different set of obligations, um, both internal, right? As companies, we should be thinking about the impact of the choices we make. We should be thinking about um, stakeholders uh, in a broader sense. Um, we should be thinking about the you know, communities and geographies we're part of and how we impact those. Um, but I think it also tends to bring um, skepticism and um, observation from you know, institutions who are used to sort of thinking of themselves as speaking truth to power or keeping power in check. That includes government regulators um, and certainly includes the press. Now, we can get into a whole broader argument about how incentives and press have changed when you go to sort of, you know, advertising-based ecosystems where clicks and outrage, you know, drive um, um, page views and thus dollars, or, you know, your Twitter personal brand is, more, is, is the most important byline you have as a reporter. Um, but I actually just think it's, you know, in a, in a more generic sense, it's what happens when an underdog becomes an incumbent <laughs> and, um, you know, institutions that maybe had favored that uh, underdog for a while start to become more aggressive in their, you know, observation or criticism. And as somebody who has incredible respect for, like, journalism done well, and also fundamentally feels privileged to be part of the tech community, you know, I just tried to put some things out there that I wasn't sure were either going, you know, either going to get both sides mad at me, <laughs> or at least, you know, allow some folks to kind of come to center and say, oh, yeah, there's something going on here. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's at the extremes, you know, maybe individuals who have incentive issues. But more generically, it's just about what happens when over a, you know, a decade or two cycle, technology becomes, you know, the most important part of our economy. Well, I think it was an, it was interesting for me when I was reading it also, because I think one of the nuances that you were pointing out was basically tech is not homogenous, right? So if you think of kind of big tech or the positions of, you know, the Googles, Facebooks, et cetera, of the world that, you know, agreed exactly, as you said, have declined, you know, less in value over this whole period as a whole, you know, economy in every sector has been ravaged. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's very different than a cash strap startup that now suddenly finds itself with three months of runway, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, every, by definition, every startup is, you know, fighting for its life. And I think the, um, you know, Jessica Lesson at The Information, who, you know, was a sort of ma- mainstream journalist at, at the Wall Street Journal before she started um, that subscription uh, news uh, company, has periodically written, I think, with a very interesting perspective of, while still, you know, very much a journalist, um, you know, also now being an entrepreneur, and some of the realizations that she's had about assumptions that she made when she was, you know, only on the other side of the table. Um, I think, you know, this was, you'd have to go back a few years. Um, she's written in this style more recently, but the one that first struck me was maybe it was six months in and she sort of had this set of like, I used to believe X, now I understand Y and, um, or uh, Y the letter, not W-H-Y. And one of them was, you know, I used to think when any time a, a startup canceled a product, you know, it was, uh, you know, evidence of failure, you know, now I realize it's evidence of focus, you know, I used to think, and it was a bunch of things like that. And um, I don't belong to the, you know, sort of, hey, you can't be a journalist, and you can't write about tech, if you've never been an entrepreneur, or are not, you know, technically trained, I think that's um, uh, uh, the wrong message to take from it. Um, in fact, I think different, you know, different opinions and different backgrounds actually provide different perspectives that are quite valuable. But I do sometimes wish that I could get you know, every journalist inside a startup for just a period of time. Um, I think it would help them understand, you know, and separate, um, you know, good, good, good intentions, you know, bad outcomes from, you know, uh, suspect intentions. Um, because I think most of us, and I see this in our companies, you know, we very much try to um, back people who we think we can get up in the morning and put sweat and reputation behind. So fundamentally are going to be good citizens who are going to be intentional about the way they're building their company. Um, but every day they're, they're trying to make the best decisions they can, um, you know, with limited information. Uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully I think part of the, the role that we can have as investors is to encourage them, even in the face of adversity, uh, to stay true to their values. Um, because at the end of the day, what we care about, uh, isn't just that they built something valuable and meaningful. Um, we, we do care that they're proud of the way that they built it as well. And um, I think if we do that, we're going to end up being really, really um, great venture investors. I think if we lose sight of that values component and just focus on, um, you know, maybe enterprise value and, uh, and are they increasing that? I think if we only do that, um, we may not be as good. And the reason that is, I think we'll be less differentiated. I think we'll be more, more like a lot of other folks who could write the same investors' checks. And so uh, I hope we have sort of a positive selection bias um, with a set of founders who want to be held accountable to building things that they're proud of. I think having that value foundation layer is, is really important to call out as well, right? Because I think it's often an implicit assumption, certainly from the fundraising side of, you know, that's those are the types of founders you guys are looking to back. Um, but often, you know, folks in kind of the, the, the mainstream don't see that, right? And I, and I think it's, it's especially important now because I see the way I kind of think of actions and their, their unintended or intended outcomes is you kind of have a two by two, right? Which is on one side, you know, is it well-meaning or let's say, is it with malintent? And I think mm-hmm. both things are in the well-meaning probably bucket. But then there's the outcomes layer, which is, is it a good outcome or is it a bad outcome, right? Right. Um, and that's and, just math that's in some ways, right? I mean, like, exactly. um, what, I, what I love, uh, you know, is the, the un- unambiguity of that, um, the, the clarity of that, right? Um, I think we can be, you know, we have, we've been lucky 
uh, we're in three funds in, and we've been lucky from our first fund to be backed primarily by institutional LPs. So that's sort of endowments, foundations, folks who have great exposure to the venture ecosystem. They're in a lot of great funds. They've been in some of those funds for decades. And they'll continue to support us so long as, um, A, you know, we, we behave in a way that's consistent with their values, and B, um, you know, deliver results, not just, you know, sort of results that beat the average venture fund. Uh, the average venture fund is actually not very good, but that's not the, those aren't the managers they're investing in. You know, we want to, we want to beat, you know, their expectations of us. And I feel really good about the former, uh, like, you know, that we're going to continue to sort of, you know, behave and be a positive value in the, in the marketplace. But from the, you know, from the first papers that we signed with them, we knew that uh, we also ultimately have to perform, um, that like they can be, uh, they can enjoy us, <laughs> but they won't keep us, you know, as managers long-term if we're not, you know, delivering results. And fortunately, we're far enough into our first fund, um, which includes uh, uh, exited companies already like Building Connected and Cruise, um, in process exiting companies, uh, Plaid, um, which is being acquired by Visa, and some other companies that have gotten to a, a pretty sort of substantial later stage in their growth, um, hopefully with still lots of growth ahead of them, like Chime, a, um, a, a challenger neobank here in the US, um, that that fund is shaping up pretty well. But then, you know, you go back and fund two is still early. You know, fund three is even earlier. So you sort of restart the clock, you know, each fund in terms of what does that number end up being. Um, and I think any investor, you know, has to sort of be a certain degree of confident, but, you know, sort of obsessive <laughs> in, you know, uh, making sure that, you know, what they're doing fund over fund um, is going to work because the, the world changes around you, right? I mean, we sort of referred to that a little bit earlier, which is, um, you know, what's happened over the last month and what might be happening, you know, in the months to come. But uh, I think there's a lot of venture funds who've been around for a long time who are still using investment models and, um, organizational designs internally, you know, that may have been better for the 80s and 90s um, than for the 2020s. And it takes a while for those funds to either have a crisis that forces them to change or to underperform, you know, in successive funds, which will sort of cause talent to leave them as well as LPs potentially to start to pull commitments. Um, okay. But I think it's healthy overall and certainly healthy for entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think it's certainly a rebalancing act that happens. I think one of one of the one of the challenges in venture is always, and, and you were alluding to it, is just the long feedback cycles, right? So I think the, you know, unlike being kind of an operator or being on the on on the startup side, to get the feedback loop or the feedback cycle of, you know, is a model, is a thesis, et cetera, on a venture fund side working out, it certainly takes that was know, the craziest thing for me. So I mean, like in terms of moving from um, YouTube, where I had, uh, you know, the, the opportunity and privilege to sort of run the product team there for a few years, yeah. you know, my percent tests, you know, if I was just going to run, you know, an AB or multivariate test overnight, like I could do it on a fraction of a fraction of our traffic and have statistically significant data very, very quickly, um, just given our sheer size and sort of testing infrastructure and that sort of thing. Um, you know, now it's, how do you, how do you do that? What do you, what do you look for? as indications of, you know, our model is working when a, you don't control the outcome of a company, especially early on, you know, we invest and in, we're essentially the, the, the day we sign, you know, and, and wire transfer, um, you know, we've sort of, we've sort of signed on to just helping that company company become the best version of what it can be. doesn't mean that we can't, you know, be a positive impact on that, but ultimately I think, you know, entrepreneurs control their destiny. Um, 
And, uh, and so changes we make, like I can't have a control group of, okay, these are five investments that we're going to make it, we're going we're gonna to wire money to, and then we're never going to talk to them again. And we'll see how they do. And here's five that we're going to wire money to, and we'll do our normal, you know, trying to be helpful. And let's see, you know, like that just wouldn't, wouldn't work. Um, and so we do look for sort of small indications of, you know, are we creating the conditions where we think we can be successful? Um, sometimes we do that in a structured fashion. We run sort of a, a outside sort of third party led 360 degree feedback amongst our, our founders every other year. Um, we, um, uh, have some sort of other data that we track and, and do some research on to make sure that we feel like we're seeing the, seeing the opportunities we should be seeing and that type of stuff. But, um, you know, you have to, you know, you, I think you have to take sort of an art and science approach to it. I know there's people who are trying to do more of a science approach and they're doing more sort of quantitatively and analytically driven investing. But, um, you know, A, we'll see if that, that works at scale. Um, and B, I just don't think that's the model that we would take. You know, we want to be the best version of homebrew, which is sort of a very old school type of approach, right? Like a early stage, small team, concentrated investment model. Um, and then, you know, work, work with those folks, not just to the next funding round, but really from sort of the series B, I think is where, you know, we step from the boardroom to speed dial. And I think that, that that model has to work dependent on the stage that you're in, right? So I, I often see this, the kind of intent or the thought process of let's be an incredibly quantitatively driven fund at the seed. Um, I think you can be a, a really interesting quantitative fund at the C, right? Or the D, right? Where you have a whole bunch of data and it's more around business model risk. I, I just think when you're, in a, when you're in a game of outliers and you're in a game of... Um, you know, fundamentals, there's some, there's some level of pattern matching, but I don't think the best seed investors fundamentally, and I'd, I'd be interested to get your opinion on this. I don't think the best seed investors fundamentally are, you know, it's hit the 20 items on the due diligence. Yeah. I think you can be, I think you can be, you know, people sometimes derisively call it spray and pray if you're making a lot of investments at seed. I, I think that's, yeah. that's, um, that's, you know, uh, a pejorative by people who, you know, uh, uh, couldn't be successful <laughs> doing that model. Um, I, I think it's, I think it is, uh, potentially possible to, uh, let's call it, uh, you know, index, uh, uh, a large number of the, you know, uh, top decile <laughs> of startups. Um, it doesn't mean that every fund you create is going to be a 10 X fund. You might still, um, uh, uh, you know, have your ups and downs, but I think it's possible to do that. Um, I think, you know, Y Combinator is a version of that in some ways. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's evolved over time, but the classic SV angel model, um, I'm lucky enough to be a small LP in one of their early funds and, um, they very much, um, were able to do that. And, um, so maybe it takes different strategies for different geographies for different moments in time based upon the types of companies being formed, um, how those founders make, their choices where their funding should come from in a world awash with capital. Um, but I mean, as an LP, uh, I'd be happy to have my money in the best performing version of a lot of different playbooks, right? Um, you know, I'd be happy to put my personal money in uh, the best version of somebody who makes 50 seed investments a year. You know, that's not homebrew. I'd also be happy, and I do have my money, you know, in a fund that makes eight investments a year. It's called homebrew. Um, and so I think so long as an investor has a playbook that they understand um, how to win um, and hopefully also leverages their strength, um, you know, they have a better shot, I think, at, you know, hitting their benchmarks, outperforming, uh, you know, their competitors um, than somebody who 
is running a is running somebody else's playbook, you know, a poor version of somebody else's playbook. Like, oh, that worked for the benchmark guys, so we're going to do that. It's, you know, that sort of reminds me of people who said, you know, Google Google feeds lunches and and offers massages, and so if we want to be Google, you know, we have to have the same perks. And it's like, well, no, that's not what made Google Google. Um, so similarly, you can't look at a benchmark, you know, and say, well, clearly the only way to win is, you know five or six person equal partnerships like yeah. you know it worked for them <laughs> i'm a big believer you know in small equal partnerships but you know there's other other playbooks and other venture firms that seem to have done well in different ways so you know far be it for me to sort of judge the industry as a whole it's kind of interesting i don't i have plenty of respect for many of my you know what would you call them peers colleagues whatever but if it wasn't for homebrew i wouldn't be a venture capitalist so i'm not interested in being the 13th partner at somebody else's fund i'm not interested in um doing this by myself like this is very much a byproduct of sasha and myself wanting to create a a vehicle for us to work together but in a way that i think um has clear you know sort of product market fit it doesn't have to be for everybody um but for enough of the founders who are you know who are going to build meaningful companies we seem to be a preferred option for them and so so long as we uh, can continue to sort of put that work in and, and and you know help them achieve what they're looking to do i think we'll be I think we'll be fine, you know, even through, uh, you know, a COVID-19, you know, uh, you know, quarter long, year long, two year long, you know, impact cycle. And so let's talk about that impact cycle a little bit, right? How does your, and it might not at all, but how does your behavior as an investor, you know, adapt or change? And, and I ask that with the backdrop of, you know, there's the adage that a lot, that, that many VCs are touting, which is, you know, business is open as usual. And I think there's there's some underlying truth to that from the perspective mm-hmm. of, you know, we're long-term investors, so on and so forth, but it's not a wholly accurate statement, right? I mean, the business landscape is obviously very different today than it was a month ago, and, and it will be, you know, for the foreseeable future. And not only that, but it'll have different implications for a post, you know, COVID world. So when you yep. think your behavior, right, as an investor, yeah, how do you think about the adaptation to the the current landscape? And then, of course, you know, looking, you know, looking further out for the ramifications of a, of a post-COVID world. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely not a macro guy in the sense of, let me tell you how this changes venture. Let me tell you yeah. which, con- which consumer behaviors people are going to be doing now in 2022 based upon, you know, 30, 60, 90 days of sheltering in place. Like, I, I think there's a lot of speculation. Um, and, you know, people can, people can decide, you know, which of that punditry they want to follow or not. Um, I can tell you sort of how we think about it. Um, and I, I do think you're right. The question about business as usual, um, you know, maybe there's maybe there's sort of three different sort of ways to think about venture, maybe four, um, or f- different sort of jobs I have. Like the first is um, deploying new capital. Well, actually, the priority for us is the first is working with the founders that we've already backed. Um, is that business as usual? Absolutely not. Um, we are helping them all think through, at the very least, what a revised 2020 plan looks like. Um, that doesn't mean everybody is, you know, laying people off, cutting spend, you know, uh, 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 trying to figure out how to pivot towards telehealth. Um, for some folks, you know, we think that they have, you know, quite a you know, robust opportunity, you know, to um, uh, accelerate some of the work they're doing. Uh, and this is especially true for people who are servicing future of work, uh, you know, maybe in the modernizing, uh, of healthcare, um, whether it be, you know, infrastructure or direct to consumer type of stuff. Like I actually think there's some frictions that, um, 
you know, have been removed from the marketplace for those folks. And so maybe for them, it's, well, you know, do you want to move faster and take advantage of this opportunity? Um, but fundamentally, startups in motion are momentum machines, right? So I always think of, um, maybe it's an it's a oversimplification, but think of each startup between its milestones. Um, and let's say, as so long as they're venture-backed and subsisting, you know, are requiring venture capital in addition to revenue, in addition to debt, but, you know, are, are going for venture funding, you can sort of think about, you close around and you press down on the accelerator and you come off the ramp and your car, you've, you've, you've you know, you've made a very uh, specific calculation <laughs> about how you're going to get to the other side of this jump. And for the most part, you know, you're kind of assuming that the, you know, the conditions stay the same. You know, there's not a sudden gust of wind. You, nobody is moving, you know, the landing raft. Um, and so you're sort of, you know, in, you're in, you're in, uh, in motion. <laughs> you're, you've, you've calculated momentum. Um, I think what we have right now is an event that, uh, you know, may or may not be moving the landing ramp, you know, for a lot of companies. And it is hard when you are, you know, uh, uh, a momentum machine to figure out then, um, well, do I just keep going or do I readjust, you know, to try to get to that next side safely? And so for those companies, we, we, we have to be having those conversations along with the rest of the cap table. Um, uh, so that is not business as usual. Um, there's going to be companies that will be fine and will, you know, accelerate through it. There's going to be companies that, um, see an extension of their sales cycles or see, um, you know, sort of changes in their own plans. And we're going to be there, um, you know, with them through that and potentially if they need it with additional capital. And then I think there might be folks who, uh, you know, had one last, you know, one last try who, you know, don't make it through the year, um, and helping those people figure that out. Um, if it is the right answer for them, um, you know, treat their people fairly, um, you know, wind down gracefully, I think is part of the job of an early stage investor. Um, you know, we have to take that risk and we have to take that risk alongside our founders. So that, that is, you know, the job, that's the job we sign up for. I feel very fortunate that because of our operating model, you know, we've been working with some of these companies, you know, for years and know them intimately and have the trust and context to be able to provide, um, you know, feedback to be proactively useful to them, not just to sort of, you know, send them links to blog posts or all of a sudden, what do they call it? Like, uh, pigeons, you know, they, they swoop in, they poop and they leave. <laughs> so like, um, you know, we're not a passive investor who all of a sudden is, you know, firing off notes of saying how much, you know, how many months of cash do you have left? You know, what's going to happen? You know, please respond within five minutes. Um, so that, that I do think looks a little bit different now, you know, in, in end of March, April, um, than we were forecasting in January, of course. Um, so that's one part of our business. The second part of our business is making new investments. Um, and that is kind of, I mean, it's a cliche, but we are open for business. Um, you know, we've made, <laughs> we've made post-pandemic investments. Um, in those cases, it's been people that we've started conversations with earlier in the year. Um, so I don't think we've made any investments yet that are pure Zoom, <laughs> pure, pure Zoom relationships. Um, but, you know, Part of our job is to deploy capital and we have the capital and the capacity to do that. And I, and I, and I do believe that it's a great time to start a company, um, you know, if you can take on, you know, the risk of stepping away from your job and, um, you know, starting to build something um, that may or may not work, but we want to be there to support the ecosystem. Um, the, two, the two other aspects that maybe are to, to venture that are the business as usual question, which I think maybe don't get talked as much, uh, you know, about on Twitter are, um, 
you know, LP, uh, uh, VCs doing their own fundraising, right? So um, those that are you know, looking to raise funds this year or uh, towards the end of the year, beginning of next year, how does that uh, change their perspectives? We're in a fortunate position to be relatively early in our third fund and not, not be fundraising again until 2022 and have, like I had referred to earlier, a bunch of sort of evergreen institutional investors. So, you know, we, we don't have to, you know, we, of course we want to keep them aware and we learn from them too. Um, so we, we keep them involved, but, um, you know, we don't have to worry about, um, um, some set of activities, you know, to keep ourselves in business from that perspective. And then the last, uh, and this is maybe a little bit of inside baseball, but I think, you know, different funds, you know, their own internal dynamics and organizational size and decision-making and personalities like do or don't function, you know, better or worse in this sort of environment, right? Um, we're lucky. There's five of us. Uh, we all like each other. Sacha and I are equal partners. Um, you know, uh, I, I miss not being three feet away from my team, but the fact that all five of us can still jump on a Zoom and, um, you know, have a foundation to make decisions and trust one another and so on and so forth, uh, you know, I do think is business as usual. Um, and I'm not sure that can, you know, that can be as easily, you know, as easily transferred if you're a 200 person organization or if you're an eat what you kill type of team where, you know, everyone's off doing their own deals, but needs to come back for feedback. Like, how do you, how do you manage that? Um, obviously firms are figuring it out. Um, and they're all, you know, incentivized to do so but um yeah i mean so i say it's you know sort of all for us at least it's all business as usual except that how you know doubling down to support the founders that we've backed um we build our calendar around that so to the extent that one week you know that takes more time than we expected because of things outside of the founder's control and outside of our control then of course that week we're less likely to meet with new entrepreneurs and that's just the you know 24 hours in a day problem um if a startup can solve that uh, please let me know. Uh, <laughs> I'll write them a term sheet. Um, but, uh, but that's the way we faced it. And, um, um, so far every, every company that we've backed that had a term sheet signed, you know, uh, those rounds have closed. We haven't seen any retrading or people backing out of deals. Um, and, uh, I assume we'll have people who are, you know, at some point, even though we're trying to get them to make sure everybody, uh, has plans that don't account for them having to fundraise this year. Um, you know, who knows what'll happen in the second half of the year. Maybe some of those things will, will start to happen again. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's the way, the way we try, the way we try to, to try to do this, you know, uh, we, we're not on the, we're not on the org chart. Um, but we do want to be somebody who the founders can turn to and turn to continually, um, for, you know, feedback, you know, but ultimately it's, you know, it's their decisions to make. I like the way that you articulated it and you put it into those four buckets, right? Deploy, support, obviously fundraising from a from a venture perspective and then internal dynamics. And I, and I want to go through kind of each of those in a little bit more depth, maybe not the, the fourth one as much because mm -hmm. you guys are a smaller team. But let's talk about, you, you just talked, you just touched on it. Let's, let's talk, you, you touched on kind of, you know, retrading term sheets, et cetera. We're, we're starting to hear a little bit more noise, right? About, yep. about that kind of element. And I, I think, you know, as are most things that meet the eye, there's typically more nuance to the situation than a black and white event, right? So I, I'm curious when when you think about kind of whether it's, you know, post-pandemic deployment or, you know, deployment into new companies that you had started a relationship with before, the facts have certainly changed, right? And so if we take kind of a more balanced, you know, less cynical approach that investors aren't evil and just want to pull term sheets, right? But we, we balance it with, you know, there is a there is a reality of a change in facts on the ground. I think these are the types of opportunities and situations where 
whether it's on the founder side or investor side, reputations are made. Mm-hmm. So how are you guys navigating kind of that landscape where, you know, there is sensitivity to potentially, you know, sure. you've talked terms, you've touched on things, et cetera. But the reality is, is the world has changed as well. Yeah. Look, if there's not a sign, if there's not, uh, I think there's a big difference and a big, you know, a big line in between a, we have a, you know, a co-signed, you know, duly executed term sheet that we're in the process of closing on versus we've talked about stuff, right? If you have a, you know, a term sheet that is being executed against and there's no, you know, contingencies that are still being worked out or, um, uh, and it's just a question about from a, you know, a funding entity's perspective of, oh, I feel like I overpaid given the market conditions or so on and so forth. Like, I'm sorry, you know, this is a, you know, repeat game with reputation stakes and, um, I'm going to do everything I can do as part of that cap table to bring that deal to a close. Um, um, and, you know, that's part of, I think, the value that comes from, you know, working with, uh, you know, within the venture community um, is that, you know, we are able to do that because it is most likely that person who had signed the term sheet from an investor standpoint, you know, is going to want to do more deals in the future. Um, and so I've only heard, you know, anecdotes here and there. Um, you know, the closer you get to private equity, which is sort of, you know, somebody buying controlling interest in your company at the late stage, like if prices have changed, you know, and you're still out there negotiating, like things are going to change. Um, but anything other than that, anything that was, you know, Hey, three months ago, we talked about, uh, you'd be there for me if I needed more money, so on and so forth. And, you know, does that still stand? And at those terms, like, I think it's, a founder, a CEO's responsibility to get clarity on that as soon as possible um, if it's something they're relying upon. And I totally, in those situations, do understand the, um, you know, hey, we, we need to talk about that or we, can, we, we, we still have the dollars here, but we need to think about what valuation could look like, you know, and, or what you need to revise the plan so we can understand that this gets you to the next milestone and it isn't just a bridge to nowhere. Um, that's part of the real aspects of, you know, running a company or if you're a founder and you turn, you know, when, when the, when the winds were at your back, you turn down deals now going back and saying, Hey, is that still available? Like the answer is no, it might not be, um, uh, venture, you know, venture sentiment and venture, you know, each firm's reserve models, <laughs> um, are dynamic. And so in those cases, I actually suggest that founders sooner rather than later, um, you know, get some clarity from their internal uh, investors as to, you know, what support is there if needed. And if you want to do, you know, if there's an opportunity to do a, get a, get a top off and get some more money into the company right now, you know, maybe doing that. Um, I do think there's going to be some, you know, let's call them good companies who did what they were supposed to do, who just get stranded. Um, they might be in the travel or retail segments, um, where there's been, you know, a fall off of, you know, uh, uh, customer <laughs> demand for the foreseeable future, you know, and some degree of multiple compression. Um, they might have uh, valuations that they, you know, are sticking to that they need to uh, rethink. Um, you know, recapitalizing and staying alive is still better than going out of business. Um, and I think there's going to be plenty of investors who actually are still very much focused on, let's see if we can create something of value in the long term. Um, you know, venture capitalists don't make money off of, you know, double, you know, people sometimes say, you know, singles and doubles, you know, uh, small outcomes. And, 
you know, sometimes, sometimes they need to be reminded of that. But I think for the most part, people react in very rational ways, which is, um, you know, if this one is something that's working, let's get more capital into it. If this is something where we want to see more cards turned over, let's figure out how to get more capital into it, but at a, a way that's mutually fair. And if, and if this company just doesn't, um, is, you know, just isn't working and we don't think there's a scenario to get it to the place that's working, um, you know, let's make sure that people have a, you know, a chance to, to end gracefully to, you know, uh, compensate, you know, employees with, you know, severance and, and the right scenarios and, um, and let's not make it hard on them. Um, so, you know, I think very bluntly, you know, people's portfolios fall into one of those three buckets, right? Like, Hey, we're doubling down, you know, Hey, um, you know, we'll be supportive, but we'd like to see you like extend your own way and try to find some new money. And hey, I'm not sure there's going to be capital for you from us. Um, so you know, let's talk about what you think that means, and let's let's you know let's offer some other suggestions. Um, and that's not you know, besides the fact that those conversations are you know emotional, um, they should be the ones that you know a CEO feels comfortable having with their investors. Um, and frankly, that's our job. Um, so I don't, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for VCs who like thought the job was going to be easy because there was a decade long bull market, you know, and, uh, and, uh, liked the idea of being a VC, but, you know, aren't signed up to do the work when it comes to things like this. Sure. Sure. What are you, what are you advising your founders to do? You tweeted yesterday. I thought it was, it was, it was, uh, completely apt for our conversation today. You said, you know, now it's not the time to spend a uh, sure. dollar revenue, but it's the time to protect your cash. I think there, that plus, you know, a series of, of a couple other things I, I can think of from my, you know, own experience of leading, you know, a hundred person team right mm-hmm. now, what we're thinking about what are you advising? Yeah. So we've sent, you know, I think at the end of the day, each company, you know, each company has its own individual puzzle. And so most of the work we do is one-on-one, but we've sent two notes to all of our founders. Uh, the first was what was it now, maybe four or five weeks ago when some of this stuff started to sort of be clear. It wasn't just something, you know, confined to Asia and wasn't just the flu. Um, and we said, you know, stay, stay safe, stay healthy, start to consider, uh, you know, work from home. If you're not already a distributed remote team, um, start to realize that, you know, travel may be impacted like this, including trade shows and also start to realize that, you know, your, you know, your emotional state, your team's emotional state, your customer's emotional state is going to get a little bit of choppy, you know, and be empathetic. Um, you know, and then, you know, the, the one, two, three weeks after that, you know, this all sort of came to a head and we sent a second note, which was, you know, emphasizing that, you know, health, safety, wellness is still the most important thing. Um, that some of our industry peers had written interesting kind of, you know, open letters and we linked to some that we thought were, the better versions of those um, and that we didn't feel any need to, to rewrite the you know, entirety of those that they had, you know, not, a, not all the questions or suggestions they had, you know, did we agree with or apply to every company at every stage, but they were worth skimming. And then we made a handful of points that we thought um, were, you know, more true than not. And one of them, which, you know, <laughs> spent a paragraph writing it in the letter, but, you know, fewer than 280 characters in the tweet was, um, don't put your company at risk this year in order to maintain a growth curve that you think investors want to see and or it is costing you an increasing amount of um, negative margin to do so. 
And if, I knew when I tweeted that, that I was going to get at least some replies of it's never, it's never a good reason to do this, or this is the problem with venture, what, you know, that they support yeah, this. And like, that's, that's just not true. And it's not even a venture issue. It's like, you know, small businesses take out loans so that they can spend money ahead of revenue. I mean, there's always reasons to focus on um, spending, you know, periods where you're going to be spending more than a dollar <laughs> to get a dollar of ROI because you're, you're trying to get somewhere where that reverses. Um, and so my, you know, my emphasis though was just, you know, especially with our founders, trying to relieve some of the pressure of how am I going to, you know, the tension between how am I going to keep my company going and grow 3x this year? You know, I'm like, you don't, you, you get a bogey. If you can show that you are uh, making smart use of your resources through the next few quarters. And then once we are you know, back to some degree of stability or predictability, um, resuming growth and spend in a way that's either you know, as good or maybe even more efficient because you had some time to lay the groundwork for that, to you know, test and improve, like that's going to be fine. Um, and so that was one of the points that we wanted to, to make internally. Um, uh, a few of the other ones were sort of, you know, T tactical uh, stuff to be thinking about um, and, you know, sort of serving as the, the jumping off point for conversations we want to have rather than just, you know, sort of uh, words of wisdom, so to speak. But I thought that was one that I wanted to make sure, you know, to our portfolio. And I guess if you tweet something to the broader world, that is, um, you know, uh, I think there's more, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule, but I think if the general, you know, if the general state of venture is, um, growth solves all problems, uh, then I do think, you know, we're in a period of time where sort of, uh, you know, you'd want to edit that statement <laughs> and say, uh, you know, responsible growth solves all problems, but uh, unprofitable growth, you know, may cause more problems <laughs> in 2020 um, than you otherwise, you know, were led to believe. Um, and that just goes back to what we we're talking about, which is, you know, you are, you know, startups that are pre-A still control their destiny to a great degree. Um, they're spending very little money relative to their potential, uh, you know, sort of enterprise value if things work. Um, they're getting their first few customers. Um, you know, those folks, I, I don't think there's a pre-Series A startup in the portfolio that I've suggested do anything different. Um, now, we, they, they happen to be in areas that I don't think are going to be tremendously impacted. Um, so, you know, if, again, if we had like a retail or a... Um, you know, a travel or something, it might be a little bit different. Um, but, you know, every company that's somewhere, you know, post A is, um, you know, operating in an environment where things are different um, and will be different. Um, oh, the other thing, I, sorry, this is uh, not quite as linear, but the other thing that we talked about was running models. You know, you, um, everyone we've backed is very smart, you know, facile with numbers, that type of thing. You some, but you sometimes you get these things stuck in your head, which is like, oh yeah, our you know, the last time we, my, me and my CFO looked at our plan, like, don't worry, we have 18 months of capital. And then you look and you realize that that's assuming growing revenue, right? Yep. And so if revenue is flat or if revenue is down, you know, even for a quarter or two, that number changes quite dramatically, right? And so we wanted to make sure that as part of rerunning their 2020 plans, that people were playing with different sensitivity analysis um, that assumes uh, flat to negative revenue for 2020, um, just so that they understand what that means for cash on hand and overall burn. Um, because, you know, 18 months can turn into 12, 9, 8 very quickly if, uh, you know, if revenue goes to, you know, 20% of modeled you know, for two to three quarters. Um, so that was another exercise that we had people run through.
I think the sensitivity is really important because, you know, the, the kind of we've just fundraised and we've got 18 months till the next fundraise is, is kind of an artificial marker, right? Um, whereas there's an actual kind of longevity of business problem that's that's embedded in in what's going on, right? So if I if I kind of think about the things that we've done, right, it's it's pretty, you know, it's it's a it's a very short list, right? It's ensuring the strategy is adjusted for a new reality, you know, double down or triple down on the core business as efficiently as possible, service mm-hmm. our customers, service our employees. There's really nothing more, you know, to it that that we're doing. I, I think it's interesting though, because obviously there, a lot of the complexity is is fraught in the nuances there, but there's also, you know, and and something I want to get your perspective on is there's a lot of information out there right now. There's a lot of advice, right? There's a lot of you know, medium posts on how to be a wartime CEO hmm. and you know, get through a crisis, et cetera. How have you advised your founders to say, look, you know, there's obviously again, it's not black and white like we've been talking about the whole conversation. There's obviously people that have lived through dot-com, financial crisis, repeat founders, et cetera, that have valuable perspective. But there's, you know, a lot of kind of armchair punditry as well, right? Um, That's not necessarily applicable to your business model, your stage, your situation. Fortunately, you know, fortunately, maybe the the explosion of, you know, content marketing the last few years has created the antibodies to allow founders to kind of tune out the the COVID, you know, content marketing, right? Like, um, I mean, I I say that jokingly, but also seriously that, you know, there is, uh, you know, the same type of, here's how we raised $20 million with just, you know, with just a two minute video, you know, type of stuff has existed. So, um, and it's probably the same people churning out now their version of, uh, of what to do. So I actually don't worry that much from that regard. Um, I think, uh, our founders, you know, continue to sort of have strong partnerships with, you know, their co-founders, their executive teams, their customers, um, hopefully their cap tables, including us. Um, I, I worry more just about the, so less about the noise and just more about, you know, realizing that it's a time of intense, you know, intense stress and, um, allowing people to feel that not just shutting it down, not just denying, like having to be stoic, but allowing themselves to say, wow, you know, this is, this is going to be even harder than I thought for a period of time. Um, you know, I'd hope that we can be the type of person that they have that conversation with. I know that we have flavors of that conversation all the time, um, allowing our founders to be, you know, vulnerable um, while being confident, while being strong, you know, is something that we care a lot about. Um, But I also encourage them to have conversations with each other. Um, You know, one of our founders in the portfolio who uh, both was, you know, not, not, not his first rodeo, you know, both um, uh, started a company in 08 and then also, had a company, uh, same company, you know, that sort of went through its ups and downs before an eventual successful exit, like proactively offered just to talk to any of the other founders in the portfolio, what it was like going through rounds of layoffs before, um, you know, coming out of, you know, sort of their dip and stuff like that. Um, it's it's uh, uh, kind of humorous and, and in, a, in a dark way. So my partner Satya has been in venture before um, and those periods, because he went, back, he went back and forth between venture and product. Um, and the two periods he was in venture prior to homebrew were sort of 99 to 2000 (laughs) and 2007 to 2011. Great market. You know, obviously in different types of funds and different environments, but like he was on this side of the table in both 2000 and 2008. And so, you know, I I think we we are well positioned um, as a firm to continue to help our founders in that way. But I think what it just, you know, what it just matters is like having real conversations. Um, And like, you know, uh, that can be, you know, 
with family, it can be with founders, it can be with investors, but make sure that you're servicing that part of yourself. I mean, we've done, you know, even just, um, you know, we, we believe in like spontaneous moments of surprise and delight. So like we, you know, got the uh, addresses of where our founders are working from and sent them either like uh, 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 some, uh, some, some, some cocktail beverages from a, 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 favored, a favored founder and portfolio company um, um, house, a, sort of a low ABV beverage or, um, you know, so many, I, I'm a big coffee fan and so many of the, the local roasters are, you know, had to close their cafes and stuff like that. So we ended up sending coffee care packages to dozens of our founders and stuff. And just, you know, like checking in and doing things that have no attachment of, Hey, you know, uh, how's, how's the PNL, you know, but you know, our real sort of like, how are you? Um, because if I can't, if I don't have my finger on that, then I'm not going to be able to figure out what the right advice is for them. And I'm also not going to be able to calibrate like how likely they are to be able to execute against that advice given their current state. Um, and, you know, of course we hold equity in companies, but fundamentally, especially at the part where we're most involved, like we are backing people. If the people don't, you know, if, if the people give up, if the people aren't focused, if the people aren't getting along, um, that portends very, very bad things <laughs> for, you know, for the entity and thus for our equity. So like what we're doing, you know, especially for those first two years is, is supporting people and, you know, helping them, um, you know, helping them ultimately show up every day and do something that they're just, you know, that they want on their tombstone, right? Like not in a morbid way, uh, everything we're going through, you know, years and years and years and years from now. But I, you know, it's one of the, one of the conversations I have with founders is, look, if you take money from us, it's because we believe you know, if we offer you money, uh, it's because we believe you're working on a company that you don't just want to have an impact on your bank account or your, you know, your speaker bio or whatever, but like, we think you're working on something that, you know, you want to solve fully. And when it's fully solved, like you're going to consider that a achievement, you know, uh, uh of your life. Uh, you know, one of the things you are proud of. Um, and so like, please, if we're wrong about that, tell us and don't take our money because, you know, if, if you're working on something that's more just about your bank account or more about your speaker bio um, or something that you can't feel like you're bringing your full person to, it's just, just a job. Like we are not the right investor for you. Um, and obviously like that's sort of a little bit of an anti-sell, right? Like I, by the time I'm having that conversation, I'm usually trying to close the deal, not get somebody to say like, Oh, you're right. For the last three weeks, I've been fooling myself and fooling you. But actually if that, you know, if one in a hundred times that does happen, then good, that was mutually useful as well. Right? Like we probably wouldn't have been the right partners for them. Um, and so I think this, you know, periods like this, just take those types of relationships um, that hopefully we've already established and makes them all the more valuable, all the more th worthwhile mutually and, you know, sort of all the, all the, all the more worth investing it. Um, and so I'm glad that that's one of the things that we've done, you know, historically besides, you know, just wire people money and give them a notebook with our logo on it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's why when kind of the adage always comes and it feels like this conversation pops up every three years, which is, you know, are we bringing AI to venture, et cetera, right? I, I think there's there's just a deeply, deeply human part of it um, yeah. that that is that is not just you know models and CAC and growth rates, et cetera. Um, as we as we round out the conversation, Hunter, I, I wanted to you know pick on on one thread you were just talking about, um, and it's something you know I, I've thought a lot about the last couple of weeks. Is I think as we come out of this crisis, and and we will come out of it, right? The question on you know depth, duration, et cetera, obviously you know left left to folks that are more qualified than you and I on this, but we will come out of it. And, and I do think there will be, 
you know, downstream kind of personal behavior changes, right? So let's put kind of the macro piece aside, right? Um, but more so from the perspective of things like, you know, changing of personal risk profiles, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, increased anxiety, right? Maybe increased, you know, in some sense, complacency, right? Um, when you, we were talking a bit about this before we started recording was, you know, one of the questions that I, I like to ask folks, especially folks, you know, that have um, clout in, in the space and, and a following and such is, you know, what's one thing at this point in time, right, that you hope to use your platform more for in tech, right? What's a message that you feel, you know, either is missing or not missing, you know, uh, either is missing or is not missing and needs to be amplified. But yeah. what, you know, what do you believe at this point in time, you know, as someone in, in your position can really help the ecosystem with? Um, that's a great question. Yeah. So, I mean, look, for a variety of reasons, most of them having to do with sort of, you know, being on some of these platforms for a while, being at places that had public attention on them at, for the periods I was there, you know, Google, YouTube, things like that. Like I've ended up with, you know, uh, a little bit of a, a social media following within sort of a narrow sliver of the universe, you know, and, um, you know, what I've always loved to do is try to use that to focus attention on individuals, usually people who are earlier in their career doing amazing work who, um, you know, haven't been recognized by the industry yet. Uh, that usually means, and it's not exclusive, I'm happy to, you know, sort of talk about awesome Stanford grads who happen to be white and happen to be male, but like, it usually means, um, you know, women and people of color who didn't come through the quote unquote traditional systems, but are just kicking amazing ass in what they're doing. And, um, you know, usually happy in their job. Um, but I love to, I love to get them, you know, competitive offers. You know what I mean? I love to sort of showcase people who I think are really good at what they do and, um, put a little bit of a spotlight on them and let them start to see what happens once, you know, you get kind of, um, that kind of, uh, what would you call it? Uh, you know, recognition, but really sort of vouching, right? Like once the sort of people vouch for you, the types of opportunities that start to roll your way, Hey, will you be an advisor to this? And we'll give you some equity. Hey, you know, we're, looks like you have a great job at, you know, fill in the blank company, but we're also looking for somebody to lead our design team. Would you be interested? You know, Hey, you know, we, the venture, we, some big venture fund are hosting a, you know, next generation designers dinner, you know, we'd love to have you come just a bunch of stuff that, that, um, you know, the doors start to open. And, and the reason I do that is frankly, I benefited from it. Like I think about people who, uh, responded to my emails, opened doors for me, you know, at points where there wasn't immediate transactional value for them. It wasn't because, you know, I was running a venture fund or maybe I'd retweet them or, you know, I, I could help them, you know, with some problem they were having at Google or YouTube. It was just because, um, you know, maybe I had done a favor for them or I asked in the right way, or they were intrigued and curious about, you know, who I was. Um, and so I love paying that forward. And I mean, look, we named ourselves homebrew, um, in a nod backwards to the homebrew computer club of sort of the seventies and eighties, which was a bunch of, you know, PC enthusiasts hanging out on Stanford's campus and tinkering with stuff. And it's also where Steve Wozniak and Steve jobs first met. Um, it's, it's amazing how many people sort of don't know, Mm. don't know the origin given, you know, the number of folks who sort of have, you know, stand for, stand for Apple and specifically Steve jobs. I'm like, yeah, well, this is the founding story of that company. And it comes out of just people, you know, being interested in the tech. 
you know, and being interested in the community. And maybe that's a great way to close and sort of harken back to, you know, sort of the statement we were making about press and technologists and why are people, you know, sort of at ahead and, you know, again, talking back to like what it means to be an underdog. And even though we've shed, you know, the underdog uh, uh, reality, I don't think we should shed um, some of the, you know, unique uh, community components that powered those generations and uh, the pay it forward, you know, and the, you're, while you're so, f so focused on disruption, so focused on what's ahead, realize you stand on the shoulders of who came before you. And it's part of your job, you know, um, through kindness, you know, through charity, through open source efforts, you know, to um, use your stature, use your wealth and use your skills um, to make sure that the generation after you is doing even more amazing work um, that you had the chance to do. I think that's, you know, that's my call to action. Well, Hunter, this has been, this has been awesome. I'm, I'm really glad you were able to make the time and, and um, it was a, it was a really interesting conversation with a lot of insights. I'm looking forward to having you back on, you know, once the world is, is back to normal to talk about topics that are, are incredibly less important than what we're facing. Yeah. You know, give me, yeah. give me a few years from now where, you know, all of our funds have performed really well. I'll be much less humble. You know, I'll tell you, I'll come down, I'll tell you exactly what's going on in the world and who's wrong. You know, uh, I'll be hundred percent certain of everything I believe to be true. It'll be great. I'll do it for my yacht too. <laughs> awesome. Hunter. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you.